Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host, Jason Dubray, and we're for this episode, we're going to have a master class episode. Uh, we looked recently at Jack Lemmon acting master class and uh, in the last episode, Nicolas Cage. And we're now going to look at a director, John Carpenter. And I, as a guest, I get to have uh, somebody I love talking movies with and I don't get to do it enough. Lee Beckman is joining me. And over the years, different ideas about who your favorite director is. But at times, John Carpenter's name has been mentioned. So I, a few years ago, I went on a little bit of a spending spree with the Scream Factory Blu-rays. And I decided to load up on John Carpenter movies I didn't own. And I thought I can kind of put together a show here, but I think I, I put together the show thinking of you strictly as a guest here, just because of your love of John Carpenter. The thing I did have to sort of realize in doing this, though, is the uh, premise of my show is I lose a movie at the end of this. And I happen to like uh, Mr. Carpenter, even though I, I will get to it a little bit, that I came to him a, a bit later, for sure, than some other people, because I again watch more horror movies into the 90s not not as much the 80s but we're focusing on ones that are i guess a little bit later it was still kind of starting in his his heyday but into more of his late 80s mostly 90s stuff and you know some people argue i'm not sure i completely agree with it that he had lost something between the 70s 80s into his 90s films yeah you're saying no and i i agree with that all of the movies we're talking about i would put my thumb up do I, I i enjoy some i enjoy more than others but even like my top pick i have some criticisms of but it's just a little bit more that i think oh yeah that's that's one you're yeah. you're wearing the thing shirt we aren't reviewing the thing um that would be a hard one to criticize i would try i would try to come up with something because i like to do that as a as a balanced review but that's a pretty tough movie to criticize so we are talking maybe criticize one shot in the thing everything else uh i would leave alone i have reviewed four of his movies on this podcast five if you count his contributions to the latest halloween series when i when i reviewed the third movie called halloween but i have reviewed halloween have reviewed village of the damned christine Big Trouble in Little China. I've also Yay, been on that. No, big no. trouble, big trouble. So he's been represented in the show uh, for sure, but this will be the the most I've concentrated on John Carpenter. Lee, I think you've had more time with Carpenter than I have. What is it about him that you love? Um, well, he w when I was really getting into cinema, not just film, because I do believe film and cinema are two different things, but um, well, cinema... Uh, and in an element of film, but also auteurs, he was the first filmmaker that I learned about. Um, a John Carpenter film is unmistakable. Even with the big studio films he's done, you can tell it's a Carpenter film from, from his aesthetics, um, from you know his use of synth, even when he's not doing his own music, like with the thing, you know, with Ennio Morricone. Um, the stories he tells, like they're 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 not happy stories. Um, no. <laughs> um, but just yeah, he was the first filmmaker when we're talking about auteur filmmaking that really taught me about the language of film. Uh, you know, his use of wide scope shots, his music, his 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 script writing. Um, I learned a lot about the language of film studying Carpenter. And so he kind of opened the floodgates to me learning about 
how important directors can be to filmmaking. That is something that I think we are losing going forwards is having, a, a you know, the love of auteur filmmakers. And you can argue both the pros and cons of that. Um, but he was the first one that really got me. Oh, so we've got Jared Carpenter. Well, then who is David Lynch or Jane Campion? Um, who is, you know, Francis Ford Coppola or Brian De Palma? Um, you know, who are these artists, these directors that leave their fingerprints uh, on their films? Um, I have been attracted to the romantic notion of the individual. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of collectivism, uh, especially in the social stratosphere. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with identity politics, and I get the sense Carpenter does too. Mm -hmm. um, he can't ignore it, nor can I. Um, but he is not a lover of greed and capitalism. Um, he has a hard time taking direction from others, although he does, uh, just hearing a lot of interviews and reading books about him or from him, he says, it's ironic that I hate taking orders from people, especially, you know, higher mucky mucks when I'm a director and, you know, like to be in charge myself. Um, so, uh, I, I do, uh, I do appreciate his sense of individualism and it might be a romantic notion of it you know it is very american hence his love of westerns um but i do think especially you know if, and it's funny because he's tried so hard not to be a political filmmaker at the same time his films a lot of his films have i wouldn't say all but some of them have deep political themes they live is a shining example especially on the sheer force of of capitalism and greed um, you know, at times he just, you know, he wanted to be just a genre filmmaker to entertain, but he can't avoid the political, uh, which I, I also do enjoy as well. So that's, I think that's where I can start on my love on Carpenter. Um, I kind of admire the fact, and I'm not surprised the older he gets, he's a grumpy old man. <laughs> I love um, the grumpy old men now. Yeah, I do in a lot of ways. I mean, the dude's the dude's in his seventies. Um, he like he doesn't. I don't think we'll see him make a movie anymore. Although I keep on hearing he might be close to one. Um, but you know, he it doesn't surprise me that he's turned his love to music since his father uh, taught music, and he's touring with his son uh, on this style of music, and he's left such a huge imprint on so many modern filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez. Uh, on down. Um, it does not surprise me that a lot, a lot of his films, especially earlier films, have since been re remade. Um, he is such an influential uh, filmmaker, whether it's popcorn filmmaking or just film in general. You know, there's a quote saying, in America, I'm considered a bum, but in Europe, I'm considered a hero, an artist. Um, and that doesn't surprise me as well. But I do think he is an artist. Um, but his canvas is very much genre filmmaking. So that, I think, is also another element of Carpenter that I love. He's not like Wes Craven. I do have another show that I'll do someday where it's Carpenter versus Craven. Yeah. Wes Craven wanted to be the Academy Award winning serious director, but he couldn't get past, you know, his, his gateway into Hollywood was through horror yeah. and 
his other his attempts to move out of that unfortunately didn't always work out it you know it weren't bad i mean he certainly music of the heart would be an example of that but but he wanted to be that i think carpenter was pretty comfortable doing the stuff he wanted to do because his influences were genre filmmakers as well and then he's influenced as you said many others and it's funny you mentioned you know, one of the movies we're talking about, I had feel so much like uh, like Robert Rodriguez, um, and and so it's it's kind of, it's a big thing I've been noticing lately. Kind of these three generations of influences. It's you know how the filmmakers that I've grown up with and loved have been influenced by all these great filmmakers from the mid part of the twentieth uh, century, and now you know the the new filmmakers are doing homages and are being influenced by the Carpenters and the Scorseses and the Spielbergs and, and, and those folks. So, yeah. One of the reasons why I love the film, it follows so much is, is that it is pure Carpenter. It, it is. Yes. Just once again, the wide screens and having this figure either where it's coming, you know, center stage or it's coming, it's in the background. Like he does that. He did that a lot with Halloween and Michael Myers where the character is almost out of focus to the left or right in the background uh, with that wide scope panor panoramic shots. Uh, and it follows, has that same thing where the evil, the specter, <laughs> a spectral STD, I can't believe I, it really took that long to do that, where it just <laughs> doesn't stop. And it just, it's a long shot, it, it, you know, it, 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 and it's a long cut and the thing just walks and walks and walks. Mm -hmm. And that that's a Carpenter-esque trick to me. Now, I'm sure he barred it from Hitchcock as well, but you look at a film like It Follows and go, oh, that is pure Carpenter. And that and the music as well. I, I like Carpenter's cinematic. I think we're yes. moving away from movies that are cinematic now because everything's VOD, you know, because of the pandemic and so many other things. And so there's very few filmmakers left who are, first of all, being greenlit for a, a theatrical release. Or if they do, they maybe get a week in or two in cinemas. That's it. They're making their movies for television screens, which are bigger and wider than they used to be, for sure. But yeah. some, some people are just not fooling around with that. I, I'm going to mention the, uh, the the films that we're talking about, kind of ranging. The earliest one is going to be 1987, and I think we go up to 1990, 1996. We're going to take a look at, this is the only one I tried to not do an overlap. You did a similar show on Rank and Review with Larry. I think this was the only one that was the overlap from that one. Prince of Darkness. Then we're going to take a look at Memoirs of an Invisible Man. An interesting one in his filmography. A Chevy Chase comedy slash horror question mark. Uh, then we're going to look at, so we're getting a, a, a little bit of a side of uh, Toby Hooper in this one here. But this was uh, Body Bags Made for Showtime, which is an, an anthology movie. I was supposed to be leading to a bit of a longer TV series, and that didn't kind of pan out. Then we're looking at In the Mouth of Madness. I think it you might argue that is a bit of a cult following. I'm not sure it lit the world on fire when it came out, but now it's uh, people have really discovered it. Well, they should. Next one, I'm interested to see how we go with this one, but Escape from L.A., the secret yeah. New York. And it'll be sort of depending on who you talk to uh, on this one. Uh, and then one, I, and I, I think I went to see this with you when it was theaters because it was during our uh university years there john carpenter's vampires oh, yeah. and yeah it's the oldest one so those are the six we're talking about anything else you want to say before we get into the reviews no thank you for having me
anyone in close proximity has the same dream. What is it? A secret that can no longer be kept. It started a month ago. What started? A change in the earth and the sky. His power. There's a weird locking mechanism. Looks like it can only be opened from the inside. A life form is growing out of prebiotic fluid. It's not winding down into disorder. It's self-organizing. It's becoming something. What? until last night we've been preparing the show for for a little while and i yeah. went back and i looked at my notes and i looked at my points and i went and changed my points it wasn't today it was last night but prince of darkness i've watched it a few times now and there's something about that one where when i'm watching it i enjoy it enough but there's certainly things i pick up that i can criticize but of the movies we're talking about probably the one that has stayed with me the most is prince of darkness and the points changed for me obviously for the positive and this one when i was looking back it's like oh i must have been just the wrong mood when i when i last watched this and when i was writing my notes and being overly critical this is a very intelligent horror movie uh it's essentially about a group of graduate students and scientists who uncover this ancient canister in an abandoned church in uh, in Los Angeles, an interesting area of Los Angeles. And when they open the container, they inadvertently unleash a strange liquid, and there's an evil force in that liquid for all of humanity. And so it's it's kind of got a... And this is... I think he's very influenced by B-films. Uh, and this has kind of like, okay, you've got this ooze, and it's very, uh, you know, very gross, very cinematic, very 1950s, but evil comes from this ooze. Yet, it is a very smart film that, you know, incorporates some some science and the occult together and tells a story which, you know, if it had been done in a different way, you could almost call this a slasher film, but it's it's not. I'd say closer to a zombie film, but okay, sure. Maybe, maybe zombie, um, but you have a group of people that are potential victims for, for this evil presence. So I, I really enjoy it. What was kind of interesting or like is preparing this, I realized like, I don't know why, other than uh, Kurt Russell and his famous collaborations with John Carpenter, I hadn't taken note of how many times he works with the same actors as these yeah. old movies. Definitely has his uh, group of actors that he works with. Yeah. 
and one of the great members of his company is Donald Pleasance. And yeah. Donald Pleasance and his character is just called Priest. And he gets this group of people together. And it's such a different character from his character in the Halloween franchise. Loomis will, he's the one who's, he's, he's, he's gunning for action. He's chasing after Michael Myers. He's trying to stop Michael Myers. But this is a guy who was fascinated by this evil. But when it gets out of control, this character becomes such a coward. And I thought that was... I, I wasn't sure how, how to take that. Maybe you disagree with me on that one, but he's cowering in the corner while the others are trying to figure out a way to, to stop this and come up with a plan. I think there's maybe some greater comments, as you said, Carpenter. Uh, I, I don't think he trusts institutions. I think... Yes, he's uh, very, he's uh, very uh, anti-establishment. And we'll talk about that in another movie with the Catholic Church. But And I think he's almost suggesting the church cowering away from actually battling evil, and then it's up to others in in that maybe this is a stretch i don't know but but i i kind of like that choice i wasn't sure the first time i saw it that i liked that choice because i maybe had in my head donald pleasance is like the the screaming old man who's going to to fight fight terror here but it, it it's left up to some other people here to do that i kind of in a way like that most of the cast are are not people that took off as much as in some of his other films where we're seeing Kurt Russell, we know where he's going to end up and all that. But we have we have a couple of those faces, like certainly uh, Victor Wong, who shows up in a lot of Carpenter stuff. Love Victor the, Wong. The biggest, and, and it was kind of advertised that Alice Cooper's in this movie, but they made it out like he was going to be the star of the film. I think it's probably for the best that Alice Cooper never says a word. I, I think if he was to speak in the film, it might be a distraction, but they yeah. found the perfect perfect role for him too and that's very much that outside and how it's affecting the evils affecting the neighborhood that's where I, yeah i get the zombie idea in there for sure and he leads this very very odd gang of people so there's danger inside the church there's danger outside the church mm -hmm. these people are trapped and they have to figure out what to do and to jump towards the end carpenter in about i don't know 30 seconds managed to do something to me where it's like wow what a terrible idea for an ending into oh that is the perfect ending. He does this. It's a little bit of a complaint I have in some of the movies that we have. It was all a dream. You know, we have this scare sequence, which is used a lot and continues to be used a lot. And some of them, it's a dream within a dream within a dream. So that's something I wrote down in the negative. But then it was the last moment of the film was a perfect ending. And he throws in so many other creepy things, particularly that VHS, you know, dream that they're all having. And you're just like what is going on and it's scored perfectly shot perfectly so all of the brilliant moments completely outweigh any picky criticisms i have so prince of darkness is one that's just grown on me more and more with each each viewing and i plan to watch it several more times unless you happen to take it off my movie shelf today so it won't be i don't think so no no i i'm a big defender of prince of darkness do you know like if you look at who wrote the movie, I think you'll you'll get a big idea of where he's coming from. Do you know who wrote the movie? Dum, bum, well, it was actually Carpenter, but he used a, a fictitious name, a pen name, Martin Quatermass. Um, one film that a lot of filmmakers from his generation grew up loving was Quatermass in the Pit. It started off as a BBC, BBC series, all kind of like Indiana Jones, Doctor Who-ish. Uh, there was like a, a trilogy of these films, but there was a radio show before where this uh, professor who dealt 
more more X Files, maybe in a lot of ways. This is pre X Files, where a professor, um, a university professor, dealt with elements of the supernatural, and one of the big films was Quatermass in the Pit. And that plot is uh, almost a carbon copy. Well, Prince of Darkness is a carbon copy, a lot of ways, of that movie. Mm-hmm. He just um, used quantum physics. I don't know how Carpenter got hooked on quantum physics. Yeah. Uh, that, that seems such a strange thing, but hey, more power to him. Uh, he, he became infatuated with quantum f- physics and the God particle yeah. uh, that they just, I think in the past couple of years, they had a huge breakthrough explaining the God particle and how life could have been created from a scientific bend. And he took the notion of what if there is an anti-quantum? There's, you know, if there is a God, there is a devil. Mm-hmm. What, what happens if there is a, an anti-God particle? Um, and so he played around as much as he could for a genre movie with that idea. And you have a group group of scientists, uh, much like in Quatermass in the Pit, um, that make a discovery. Uh, and then that discovery uh, starts to take over. Um, in Quatermass in the Pit, it's revealed it to be alien, alien-like, but trying to pass off as the devil. Well, this is the devil itself. Um, there's lots of great ideas in the first act of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have to be critical, which, you know, we're much, it does turn into very much a sort of Night of the Dead clone. Um, you know, they're, they're trapped. They can't get outside. But these zombies, you know, they can move quickly. They're all possessed by this um, anti, anti-matter. Um, so whenever, you know, the humans try to escape from the outside, they perish brutally. Uh, but this antimatter, of course, organizes itself and gets free and starts to infect, much like the AIDS virus, which you can argue that could be an allegory. Uh, I know the Victor Wong character, there are allusions to his homosexuality um, in, in the film. You can make that parallel, if you will, because they do talk about how it infects uh, uh, people. Um, but once again, that Carpenter mood, uh, with, and it's the music also by Alan Howarth, I think his name is. I could be wrong. The score. Alan Howarth, he did the score with. It is unmistakably Carpenter. Yeah, well, like I said earlier, it starts off very interesting, intriguing. You know, we get these video recordings of, you know, you know the, the date is 1999. And, we, you know, at first we think it's uh, um, a uh, communication from the future, which it is. But is it at a friendly communication? Because we at first we see this figure, the shadow figure, and then at the end, it's that woman who spoilers. I yeah, spoilers for the movie, but the movie's the eighty, you know, nineteen eighty-seven. I think at this point yeah. we can spoil this movie and not feel guilty. Where you know it shows up to be the woman who is communicating. Now she has been trapped in the quote-unquote antimatter underworld. Um, so is it a warning or is it a deception? I don't know. What it is, though, is Prince of Darkness is fucking terrifying. Um, <laughs> say what you will. Um, yeah. You know, just the use of effects, the, you know, the, the pace of it. Um, I don't think it's as smart as it want, if, if it thinks it wants to be. Um, you know, these kind of genre films, they use, you know, very brief elements of science, but then they, they get trapped in, you know, the, the traditional genre staples which Prince of Darkness is no different. You know, like I said, it starts off as this, you know, they discover this scientific thing and they have conversations about philosophy and the end of the world and antimatter and matter. But that all goes away when that green liquid does escape and starts to affect people and mm-hmm. how it shoots in their mouth. Like it's like, you, you, yeah. it's gross. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You that. It is very gross. And you know, and that's how they infect other people is like, they'll like climb on top of other people and, and vomit it out. Um, you know, like it's, it's 
pretty repulsive. I remember seeing this movie when I was living in London, Ontario. They played it late night Halloween. And I didn't really know John Carpenter at the time, but I watched this movie and I could not sleep after after it. It was terrifying. Um, it's always nice to see an actor from Simon and Simon as their lead. Um, and the usual Carpenter regulars, like we've got, you know, Victor Wong and uh, Donald Pleasance. Um, but the other one, and I'm... I was kind of sad that this guy never had a huge career in Hollywood, but especially since he's kind of the lead in another Carpenter film called Big Trouble in Little China. I'm just bringing up his name here. Dennis Dune? Dennis Dune. That's it. Oh. Like, Yeah, he's good. He's, he's very good in this, and yeah. he's very good in Big Trouble in Little China. So it's nice to see all these characters. Um, I don't know. Like I said, like this, just from a sheer entertainment value, and it, it is dark, dark, dark. It is violent, and it, even though... It moves at, I wouldn't say a slow pace. It's not quick, quick, quick. Um, you're never bored. No. Uh, and it's just this sense of doom, doom, doom. It's part of Carpenter's, what he calls apocalyptic trilogy. Yes. Where humanity does not win at the end. And even though they have, quote unquote, stopped the evil, um, good, <laughs> I don't think, has triumphed over evil. Well, that last shot says it all. And we're talking about two of the apocalyptic movies here. I believe The Thing was the first one. Yeah, it goes Thing, Prince of Darkness, and then in the yeah, Mouth of Madness. You know, one of the things as I was going along with the movie, I kept thinking, oh, is this romance necessary? Yeah. Uh, and also kind of the evolution of that romance was very, again, 2022, nearly 2023 in a couple of days of the time we're recording this. He's pretty much stalking this woman. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, but. Confirmed yeah. sexist, he even says. Yes. Uh, but it's necessary because of I, I actually think it is necessary because of his obsession and and some of the actions in the third act late in the film, including, you know, towards the end that, you know, he's he's willing to go along with this just because he's become so obsessed with this woman. I'm not sure the performance is completely there. I mean, she serves a role well enough. Lisa Blunt is her name and she plays um, Catherine Danforth. I, I, I guess the other pieces you could kind of go into. All right. Carpenter kind of has this is a, a brilliant graduate student, but she's also a little bit of the sex object in the film. Oh yeah, no, she, uh, she's objective. Carpenter, like Michael Mann, I don't think is ever. No, I, I don't. I think his his sense of femininity uh, is almost. Let's take a a man's character and make it female, which is great in a lot of ways. Uh, it's explored in someone who watches over me, or no. That, what's that TV movie he did? Yeah, Someone to Watch Over Me, I think. I think Someone to Watch Over Me. I, I could be wrong. And I think for the 70s and 80s at the time, that could have been like revolutionary. Yeah. But it's still, I, I get the sense it's still a guy writing for a female role. And I think, I that think the romance doesn't work. Um, I, I honestly don't. Well, it's not much of a romance, anyways. It's her. A one night stand that extends longer, I guess. But still. Yeah. Um, I think we could have still had that emotional gravitas, even if they, you know, they did have that one night stand, whatever. And him, his humanity seeing, you know, another person make the ultimate sacrifice and him feeling guilt that he couldn't do more about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think people should check it out. I, I, I still think it's an underrated 1980s horror movie. Yeah. 
you know, uh, I, I think you put it on your list of favorite horror movies of, of the 80s with, with Larry. And yep. uh, did Larry do the same? I forget if he did or not. But I, I can't remember, man. Yeah, yeah, it was a little while ago. But I have to listen to that episode again. Two-part episode, by the way, as a lot of them have to be. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think we're both in the same place here. We uh, we love this movie. It's, it's grown on me more and more. As, you know, it's, it's probably not in my absolute favorite Carpenter's set of films quite yet, but it's creeping up there with each of you. So. Well, I just also love, um, he had grown very, very tired of the studio filmmaking, especially mm -hmm. after Big Trouble and yeah, Financial long. Disappointment, yeah. that he decided to make smaller independent films. This film is $3 million, and even in 87, that's pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. it, made a, it made that back and then some. So I admired the sort of independence of it. Look, that movie is, it's a cold, cold, bitter pill. And it's its a movie that I, I don't think anyone else could make except Carpenter. It's, it's yeah. just, it's very much a John Carpenter, dark, bleak movie where even though the evil is stopped for now, it's, it will always be there. And I've, I've often imagined what would a sequel look like? Would, you know, would they, would they go back and try and get that, um, that, well, I, I want to get her character's name, um, Catherine Danforth. Do they try and rescue her, and how how do they go about that? I don't see the Donald Pleasance character as a coward because he does throw the axe at the end and, and break the mirror. He's terrified, but the I idea think would be. I mean, fair enough. I'm not saying that I would be, you know. Yeah. You know, turn into Bruce Lee or something at that point. But it, it's oh, still, no. I knowing me, I would be like, oh my god, run and like. Mm -hmm. The whole fight and flight, I would probably flight. Yeah. But where do you go? Like, you can't leave. Can't there. go outside. I mean, there, yeah, there, yeah, there's nowhere to go. I just, we kind of lose him for a while because he's cowering. It looks like he's cowering. Maybe I'm being too hard on him, but cowering in the corner while, while the other group is trying to find ways, someone's failing at it, but trying to solve the problem and trying to rescue other people. And I, I just, more more of my point was it's great to see him playing a different type of character because at the time, I mean, Loomis is kind of yeah, no, he's known for throughout the eighties, seventies, and eighties for sure. So it was, and it was good that they worked together again too. And he's he's the the face of the of that fa famous poster for this film, and, uh, and it's just great to see those actors and then some some different people, very very eighties look to the film. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, because we're going long on this one, but I love the opening. It's an extended credit sequence. Yeah. Uh, but so somehow that in the music, it built up the suspense and this creepiness of the film before we barely, before we're even really getting into much of the story. And I, I just think that's, there are very few filmmakers that take the time to do that anymore. Yeah. You know, quickly yeah. go through the credits and get into the movie. Here he, he has these little great scenes and then interrupts it with, at times we don't expect to, with, Oh, the next names uh, in the credit sequence. So, yeah, this is, in, 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 and this one hasn't been remade yet. They shouldn't. I, and I, I don't I, think it's terrified if they remade this, man. Nobody um, else can do it. This is uh, a masterwork by Carpenter. Yeah, no, like Carpenter, if anything, is a master of mood. Um, just how he lights his films as well. I, I know Gary B. Kibbe is one of the DPs. I forget the DP for Halloween. Another podcast, uh, the Terror Table. They 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 actually had the DP for Halloween on, um, and it was awesome. And he talked about lighting that movie. Uh, but Carpenter gets like he he uses shadow and the and the gel colors so well, almost like a film noir in a lot of ways. 
Yes, I agree with you. The, his use of opening credits and and building all like, there are all these apocalyptic events that we see along with that score. I don't know a lot of filmmakers do that. I know with modern films they jump right into the film and then have you know the end credits which are sort of opening credits and i miss that with a lot of these films i i love watching the opening credits with the music and that getting us ready for the story to come in so i agree with you the opening sequence and it's and, the, and it's a little bit long but not not too much where we're seeing you know talk about the god particle and and you know there's ants all over this tv that you know our, our protagonist doesn't see and yeah. you know the discovery of this cylinder with this green liquid in the church and everything yeah over the opening credits it's i think it's a great way to start your movie fantastic so big thumbs up for that one yep it all started on a tuesday in march if george hadn't introduced me to alice let's not do anything cheap and meaningless okay what do i owe you if she hadn't been so spectacular Maybe I wouldn't have gotten so loaded that night. In ten minutes, I'd be as good as new. And none of this would have happened. Something's happened at the Magnoscopics facility in Santa Miro. Next thing I knew, I went from high profile to no profile. What have they done to me? Wait a minute, who are you guys? Keep your mouths shut, all of you. You're in a state of molecular flux. You want to live? gonna have to trust us where have you been everybody's looking for you i'm here sort of i want my molecules back now there's a price in my head the single most exotic intelligence asset on the planet is ours i don't sleep well i can see through my eyelids i can see through the top of my head but i'll never sell out think of the adventure we could have together yeah we can go to frontier land don't be afraid it's me nick you want to sit down if not for Alice... We're the only people that can give you your life back. I'd be lost forever. You have a face again. You don't have any body makeup, do you? Dropped about 10 pounds. Bet I'd look great naked. <laughs> Alice! Go away! She saw me through it all. I got him. Nick, I love you! Chevy Chase. Morning. Morning. Daryl Hannah. Wait, how am I gonna tell my mom about this? Just tell her you met a guy. Could be serious. He's transparent. Memoirs of an Invisible Man. A John Carpenter film. One of the weirdest 1990s pairings I can think of, but then when you think about it, it kind of makes sense in a way, is Chevy Chase yeah. starring in a John Carpenter movie, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. But again, I kind of alluded to it, and I, I don't think we agree that, like, Carpenter was losing anything in the 90s. It's just people weren't paying as much attention to him as they did in the 80s. The same could be said for Chevy Chase. Uh, part of it might be Chevy himself is uh, a, I've heard the term monstrous human being uh, at, at points, but he actually is a funny guy. And he can so, be. So probably some of my, maybe I'm being really nice to this film because. Uh, there's some sort of nostalgia connected to Chevy Chase's career, to this film, among many others. But the, the 90s weren't as good to Chevy Chase, I don't think, as the 70s and 80s were. And it could be similar similar thing for John Carpenter. I did get the sense, as much as he like put, I, I feel like Carpenter put his all into this film, I feel like this was a for-hire job. Mm -hmm. 
this this didn't feel like a you know he's not the writer for it or anything like that but he in the supplementary material for memoirs you watch him directing and he's putting everything into it so yeah i appreciate that this is a, a take on the invisible man yeah. um and so after a freak accident there's a company executive played by chevy chase who turns completely invisible and then he has to go on the run, and he's being hunted by these uh, CIA officials. Just uh, like IMDb saying it. Yep. Yeah, and I know. That's because that's I'm reading the, the synopsis for IMDb. Yep. And he's trying to figure out how he's going to be able to live his life. And he has, you know, he's a, a womanizer, and he has had this, uh, been used to a certain lifestyle, which is now completely altered. What works for me are i think the effects hold up which don't hold up for all of the movies we're going to be talking about and the physical comedy which chevy chase was always great at that's not my favorite kind of comedy but somehow chevy chase makes some of that physical comedy work it was a very good role for him i think as far as i also think because carpenter was directing he was less of a, a jerk because he i don't know maybe he was still he could have been a jerk to some other people i don't know how well they got along it seemed like they were okay but I felt like there's the ones where he's trying and the ones at the time where he's not trying. I felt like he was trying a little bit more in this film. I thought it was a decent enough performance from him. What doesn't work for me is, and we just talked about it, is the romance with, with Daryl Hannah. It raises the stakes for different things for, for this character kind of later in the film. She puts uh, up with a lot. She does. She does. And Daryl Hannah, like, she was another one. Like, kind of the 80s were a high point for her. Quentin Tarantino brought her back for the Kill Bill films, but that didn't kind of go into much after that again. She's a good sport, and I think she does, it. she does the best she can with what she's given. I don't think she's given that much of a character. So a little bit mixed, but ultimately, I, you know, was I ha having a good time? This is one I thought revisiting because I watched it previously when I was quite young and wasn't quite as discerning. Let's to be honest. And I, at the end of it, I was like, okay, as, as, as cheesy and as silly as some things are, particularly the ending, I had a good time with this movie. And that's where I land with memoirs of an invisible man. Is this John Carpenter's masterpiece? No, but I think this was a step up at that time for Chevy Chase. And I think it's an entertaining movie. If you go in with the attitude that I'm going to put my brain on hold and have a good time with it. Uh, some other John Carpenter semi-regulars, uh, Sam Neill plays the villain, awful American accent. You know, he could do a good American accent in some other films. I mean, that's a picky point, I guess. But I, I don't think that character was as fully realized. And there's some real leaps in the screenplay logic to the things that he he can hide things from the CIA. I am not buying that for a second. But it, it was okay. But again, he wasn't... I like Sam Neill, and I wasn't that thrilled with what he was doing in this movie as much as... Uh, a later movie that we talk about that he gets to be the star of. You know, I think you do worse than Memoirs of an Invisible Man. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, it continues the long tradition of his anti-establishment. You know, you can't mm -hmm. trust the Z government. It's no a lighthearted caper. I like the mix of practical effects. And at the time, uh, the I, 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 is it I, I, ILB or ILMB? The computer... Um, FX company that was just making it big in Hollywood. You know, The Abyss was soon after this. This was one of the first films to use a lot of computer graphics a lot. I mean, we had Tron years earlier, but I remember when this film came out, it boasted like this is the latest in special effects. And the imagination they use, especially when Chase gets invisible and, you know, when he first... 
is discovering that he's invisible and he tries to eat and he sees the food digest and he gets yeah. so horrified by it you know, <laughs> and throws up. There's little things about what would happen if your average Joe, your average selfish human being becomes invisible and, and what would that do to his daily life? You know, he discovers both the negative and the positive of what he can do. His life is never the same. I mean, spoilers, he's still invisible at the end of the film. There's no cure. Uh, and he... And he will be hunted for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. They do have a happy ending where, you know, he's going to be a dad up in somewhere. And, and, in and Switzerland he, or something. Or, yeah, yeah and then Daryl Hannah. Allegedly, they're going to live happily ever after. <laughs> um, but it is, you know, it, it is a pretty light, hot, lighthearted comedy thriller caper. This, this is not... Dark, dark, dark carpenter. No, I mean, this no. isn't this bleak. No, th- this is one I could probably show those who don't like horror movies. Yeah, and they would, they would get something a little bit more out, out of out of this one as opposed to other movies in John Carpenter's canon. It's not as mind blowing with the the CGI effects as say Terminator Two because when that film came out, you were blown away by what computer graphics could do, especially with the villain. But it's still pretty neat where we have sequences where he's being chased and he's taking off his clothes and using all of that. That's still pretty imaginative and cool to look at. Um, it works. I, I, I wasn't sure how the effects were going to hold up. And maybe I, it's just the quality of the Blu-ray I saw it on, and they've done a lot to it. But I you know, I, I don't I don't remember it being like, wow, this was the most amazing movie for special effects in the 90s. But yeah. it was it, it was subtle versus Terminator 2s and Jurassic Parks and, you know, these big blockbuster films, which just, I think was attempting to be, but it was never going to get the, the studio help and attention that, that those movies got. I, I would have killed the scene the set because they talk about this in the making. Like once that building leaks, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that invisible invisibility, what, whatever you want to call it, what makes him invisible, the, the Chevy Chase character. And then it also affects the building and you can see like different floors. That's all done practically. Um, they built all of that and I'm kind of impressed by it. It's just like, wow, it's a, you know, it's a gigantic statue in a lot of ways that they had to build where parts of the walls or the floors are missing i appreciate that as a filmmaker like that's not cgi they had to build all of that and so that's kind of neat to look at i you know i agree um the special effects are, are really what is attractive to the story both practical um um and computer graphic wise, it is very light hearted. Daryl Hannah character is okay. And Chevy Chase is Chevy Chase. You know, he's Fletch. He's uh, sort of a <laughs> self-absorbed yeah. character and his journey, you know, might not become as self-absorbed, but whatever. Um, Sam Neill never bothered me. I always love seeing Sam Neill and him. And what's his other, like, is there's another CIA character that is evil. Is Stephen Tolby us? Oh. Ah, Stephen Tobolowski. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, no, he's got a really interesting podcast. Stephen Tobolowski. Yeah. I'm sorry, Stephen. I'm sure you don't listen to this podcast, but if we got your name wrong, I'm sorry. But he sends me an email after every show. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Always good to see them. But it is it is lighthearted entertainment. I know Carpenter was not a Chevy Chase fan. Probably that was not. admitted. That was admitted uh, in a podcast. I heard about just uh, about a year ago that he had difficulty with him um, and had to bite his tongue, but there was no tensions on set at the same time. I mean, no, I know Carpenter can be a bit of a control freak, especially in, in operations with the camera. So who knows? Everything I hear about Chase is he's hard to deal with, but I, 
in the interviews, Chase, and again, it's publicity interviews, so take it yeah. for what it's worth, though. But he he kept he was very positive on John yep. Carpenter, but I yep. don't think he was ever a guy who was um, saying nice things about people, even when he was supposed to be saying nice things about people. Yeah. You know? Uh, so I, I think somewhere, no matter how he acted, somewhere in there he had some sort of respect for Carpenter. No, oh, yeah, not had for some of the other folks he's worked with uh, over well, the decades. Well, the man, you know, he knew what he was doing. But there's a, I'm trying to find this podcast for you. There's a Charles Band podcast where they talk about Carpenter, and he does mention uh, Chevy Chase and and not a negative light, but kind of a yeah. He's not an easy guy to work with, and I mean, you know, the, probably the less you know about Chevy Chase, the more you can appreciate him. Yeah. I knew nothing about him as a person. Growing up in the '80s, watching all of these comedies and yeah. having a great time, of course, you know my my favorite being National Lampoon's Vacation, and so maybe that's why I I accepted even some of the 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 bad, and I don't think this is a bad movie, but some of the bad movies from Chevy Chase, just because yeah. I I found him funny and had good memories of growing up watching his films. He'll uh, al- he'll always be Fletch to me, man. Yeah, and that's that's fair enough, and I see the Fletch comparisons for sure. I, I think there's a few kind of darker notes that he has to play, some things that he's not not often asked to do besides the physical stuff here. That's where I thought it was a, yeah, he never disappears into this character for sure. But I, I think is, you know, a little bit of a notch up for my complete character role for him, but it was well within his range. But I, I, I felt like there were a couple scenes where he had to push himself a little bit more. And for most of the movie, he's a special effect and that's, and how they achieve that, you know, was probably uncomfortable for him. And I, and it's nobody talks about this movie too. It's a big thing with my podcast. I want to put forward some movies. I'm a bit more of a, as I've said, a nineties person and, these movies that kind of, I opened the paper, oh, there's a new Chevy Chase movie out, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and 20 years later, completely forgotten about movie. If on my podcast I can get some people given a day in court, whether they like it or not like it, you know. I'm not sure much more, there's much more to say. I mean, we took a lot of time with Prince of Darkness, but... Uh, it's a it's yeah. a lighthearted romp with some impressive, to this day, still special effects. Yeah. You can look at it and kind of go, okay, yeah, that's dated. But I do like the imagination with the Invisible Man stuff. I have it on my shelf. I like it, but I do agree. It's it it feels lesser Carpenter. It, it it does, and it just didn't feel like a John Carpenter movie. It felt like a Chevy Chase movie. But they got they happened to get just lucked out and got an amazing director for it. And if you are a fan of the Invisible Man, I mean, I think it it it, it is it doesn't disrespect the original or that series. And I happen to like those Universal Monster films and quite a bit, uh, and have watched a lot more of them in recent years. And then watching it this serve in the same time, I was like, yeah, they you know they stuck to it. And I'm sure Carpenter was a fan of those of those films uh, growing up. I, so. I do believe it's it's what attracted them to the project. Yeah, yeah, the, right. the chance to to do one of these. So. Yeah, I, I, I would I would never steer people away from it, but you know, I, again, I'm, we're not singing on the rooftop about it. Two masters of horror. John Carpenter, director of Halloween, The Fog, Christine, and Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And Toby Hooper, director of Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Together, they bring you a frightening new tale of horror. Oh, here we are. Body bag. Where in the hell did this hat come from? 
nightmares of monstrous evil. He kind of walk. You see? I have his eye, you know. John Carpenter takes you on a terrifying journey. I have to finish taking your grave. Into the darkness of the human soul. What's happening to me? Robert Carradine, Mark Hamill, Deborah Harry, Stacy Keach, David Norton, David Warner, Twiggy, Sheena Easton, featuring cameos by top horror film directors, Wes Craven of Nightmare on Elm Street, Sam Raimi of Evil Dead, Roger Corman of The Little Shop of Horrors, John Carpenter, and Toby Hooper. Sometimes anthology films are tough to review, uh, and this is a three-part anthology film and can sometimes go a bit too long. So probably brief takes on the three stories are, 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 are best with this one here. But John Carpenter, for, for Showtime, did two segments of the three segments in Body Bags. And he also kind of centered it as far as the transition sequences in an acting role. It's so, it's so tough to do those those pieces kind of in between segments there, I, I guess. So I'll I'll start off with that as maybe apologizing for him a little bit, but I wasn't a big fan of of the bookends um, and and the segments in between all the stories and Carpenter's acting and some of the uh, fun cameos that we have. We have more fun cameos in the in the three stories, uh, but I would say I'm a fan of two of the three. And I don't know, sadly or not so sadly on a John Carpenter themed show, my favorite segment is actually one that's directed by Toby Hooper. But we'll go through uh, each one. Uh, The gas station celebrates the slasher genre with uh, this uh, young woman who gets a job working uh, graveyard shift at a gas station, which seems to have a pretty good security system. And she sees all of these crazy characters uh, throughout the night, but then is, is in in real danger because there's a there's a killer out there i i I like this quite a bit there were a couple nitpicky things here and there i think some some casting choices kind of gave away fairly early on who who the actual killer was we were given a few false leads and this might suffer a little bit from too many false endings but it hits me in the right spot as far as what i like for from from my horror and it's a real world type of a situation to be stuck in a job and you're the only person there and 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 what you do if if something got out of control like this and i really really like this alice datcher uh who's the the main character in the film and she she centers it well and a fun cameo from wes craven as a guy that he seems several notches too evil of course he's not uh spoilers but he's not he's not the actual villain but he seems like he's going to be uh the obvious villain in the piece so there's obvious to be like, wary of him yeah there's reasons to yeah so what do you think about this one well i think like any anthology movie you've got some stories that are stronger than each other than each other i think john carpenter will even agree with you that he uh him being sort of the, the kind of crypt keeper character in between he he says i'm not an actor um it's pretty cheesy. Uh, I don't think he what? enjoyed it. Whatever. I mean, it's it was Showtime's attempt to kind of have their own tales from the crypt that never really took off. Um, yeah. 
my personal favorite out of the three stories is the gas station. I I, I find that one has the most uh, pathos uh, and or um, or is like thrilling. The other two seem more like a Twilight Zone episode. Not that not that the Twilight Zone didn't have episodes like this, um, but I found the first one, the gas station, to be the scariest, quote unquote. And once again, we have those long, wide shots, those anamorphic shots that is very Carpenter esque, uh, long cuts, uh, and that that. that provides this sense of dread. I've uh, There's a story that Larry talks about, our, our mutual friend Larry Parsons, or James Lawrence Parsons III. <laughs> he, he works at um, the RCMP, and he talks about, you know, overhearing people phoning in, you know, calling for help because they've been lost in that on a highway in Saskatchewan, deserted in the middle of a snowstorm, and how they're kind of pooched. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of being trapped inside this gas station in the middle of nowhere. It, it's the kind of story that you know, people who have lived in an environment like Saskatchewan can definitely understand and identify with because there's lots of isolation. And what happens when there's an evil in this isolated area that this serial killer has been going around and killing people and we, we find out who it is by the end. Um, I knew, sadly, I knew right away. Yeah. Just because, uh, yeah. Again, if you've watched enough movies and you've seen this particular actor, I, I don't want to spoil it for because not many people have seen Body Bags. Um, but I do like that sense of fear. The Hitcher is another film that explores that. Is what happened is there's if mm-hmm. there's an evil in an isolated area that's gone unchecked for a very very long time. So I I, I do like that first story quite a bit out of all three of them. The other one, Hair. Yeah, was, we'll get yeah. Let's get into Hair. So this was also. Uh, directed by by John Carpenter. Stacy Keach is, is an actor, and he's a John Carpenter regular as well, that I, I really like, but he's a guy who's going bald, is insecure about it, and he gets this this treatment. He has to sort of, it's like a deal with the devil type of a thing to get his hair back. Or deal with and, the and he uh, And then he gets this very thick, ridiculous hair and then it goes into different directions this, this reminded me so much of cat's eye a segment in cat's eye with the with with james Woods. Oh, the anti-smoking one yeah yeah the smoking one it felt like it was that formula i'm not saying they ripped it off but i i think I, I kept being reminded of that when watching this and i much prefer the cat's eye segment to, to this one because I just think it's so cartoonish. It's just so over the top, and it's it's a bit more like comedic horror. And yeah. and I I I've told you this before. I sometimes struggle a bit with comedic horror. If it's done well, you, even then I've sometimes not been as as nice to Sam Raimi as I I, I should be. But but Sam Raimi is maybe the best at doing this. I I, I think I'm not sure Carpenter, and you you see that in the transition segments too. This fit really well with the style of of the Undertaker segments um, or whatever I would call him. Uh, Crypt Keeper is a good way to put it, segments. It was a similar type of tone and I was just taken out of the movie with them. And so this was this was the only one I, I just really didn't like. And thank God Stacey Keach played this role because that to me that's the only reason to watch this is because he is such a great actor but it, it looks kind of uncomfortable to me. I mean, he, he just, he's trying to sell this material and it's just not, in my biased opinion, uh, that worthwhile uh, a segment. But what, what are your 
Well, it, it is very goofy. I mean, I do giggle when we start to see the little aliens that are actually the hairs that move around. Yes, yes. Um, I get a kick out of David Warner and, and Blondie. It's always nice to see yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, but it is ridiculous. I This isn't the only time we see in Carpenter's career of how he is not a fan of the hedonism, hedonism or excess of our age. Um, you know, plastic surgery, it's something that yeah. He will then come back to in another film that we'll talk about. Yeah. Uh, so I do think this, you know, desire for vanity and all the things, the lengths that will go to it and how absurd it is, I think is a very, also a very Carpenter thing to do. But yeah, the story is ridiculous. The fact that, this, you know, these aliens have been here for a while and they use this hair growing company as the, their front. It, 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 is, mm-hmm. it is very silly, yeah. very silly. And it, it kills any... Yeah, he kills any real pathos. Goes back to his love of B movies. I mean, yep. I think this was a bit more of a B movie. This is maybe a fun one. I, it feels the most Twilight Zone out of all three, and, and I and I like the Twilight Zone a lot too. But I feel like the premise. Had, I think they could have gone darker with it, and if they'd gone darker, and maybe this was supposed to be like the the first the first story and the third story. I think are fairly dark. Yeah, and maybe this was just a little bit of a a break from the dark horror into uh, into what would be our, our, our third segment here. I, directed by Toby Hooper, do a podcast just on Toby Hooper. He's an interesting, or uh, was an interesting uh, guy there. But I, I think this is like, there's something about Toby Hooper where I, I've been tough on some of his films, other films I like, but this is the perfect length for him to be able to tell this rather uh, brutal story starring Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill. Who's um, really good in it. I was surprised. Was very, how good good, very good. And it was the best performance in any, any one of the, the films, even though I, I, as I, I said, agree. Alex Datcher, but in, I, I also thought he was the, the, when I reviewed village of the damned, I thought he, he gave the best performance in village of the damned as well. Oh, you're, you're giving me a face. So that'd be for another conversation for another day, but. Um, Mark Ham- I've always struck Mark Hamill, although he got better in his career and he was given more opportunity. His Luke Skywalker early on is not good. <laughs> he he was very young and yeah. not very experienced. He had the right look. Anyway, but, yeah, I mean, um, what what do I know, man? I'm I'm just a mere mortal here. <laughs> Mark Hamill, though, he, he's a minor league baseball player, and he he loses his eye. It's a ve- very over the top sequence, but purposefully i think it is versus some of the other things i'm criticizing they're over top over the top in body bags and uh and then like we have all kinds of we have a grizzly car accident and what this reminded me of and i like this movie quite a bit is body parts with jeff fahey yeah Uh, yeah yeah. where then the eye gets gets replaced and so he has this evil eye which makes him do things that he wouldn't normally do it's the lizard's tail. It, it, w- w- that's what it is. The, and Hollywood loves Hollywood loves certain stories. I mean, there's the joke that there are seven stories that are recycled and modified over and over again. And it's the lizard's tail. You know, it's the hand that Oliver Stone yeah. did. But yeah, yeah, you know, a part that you know has been added on to a human being that has a supernatural element and then starts to control the person and make them homicidal. That you know, that's been done many times before. And it's, I think it's maybe a greater comment on everybody has a good side and an evil side. And if that dark side starts to take over, again, Stephen King deals with this a lot too. Uh, a good, 
a good person can turn into a monster. And mm -hmm. I, I just, I very I think, Dr. Jack. It's very Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes. Yeah, it is. It in Hamilton handles that that well. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit. You know, if you've grown up with him as Luke Skywalker, seeing that rather uh, violent sex scene, it's, it's, that's is is a bit disconcerting. It's like, oh, yeah, it's like Luke. Luke, you put uh, the lightsaber away, man. You are in a different uh, place than you were before. So yeah, I know that, um, that 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 was a little shocking. Yeah, um, I some stuff's kind of on the nose, but. I liked it getting towards the end. Very grisly scene, like stabbing that eye, and there's blood everywhere, and you know, right on the Bible, right on. Yeah, the the like the Christian overtones um, are, are are interesting. Yeah, they sure are. But I, I I don't know. I I guess this one because i you know I, I guess it's a story that's familiar enough but i didn't completely predict fully where it was going to go i was able to because i was a, i was still able to enjoy the gas station because i like slashers and but i i figured it out right away and i'm used to having that happen then i'm just like okay let's see if i enjoy the ride or not that depends on if you have a good director which that segment had a good director this one just had a few more elements and a few more layers and it was a different kind of horror for me. Uh, and it, it definitely brought the, it brought the blood as did the gas station story. So those are the two I kind of cling on to. I, I like body bags. I'm maybe not as enamored with it as I am with some of the other films we're talking about, but I think if I had another list and it was on there, it would be among the top. I mean, you know, or at least it'd be kind of somewhere in the middle. I, I think it was, I'm in favor of more horror anthology shows. I think there should be more of them. And I know like Shudder and, and, and different, different networks and streaming services are trying to do is Netflix. Certainly the, I haven't watched the cabinet of curiosities yet, but, no, um, I and I, I'm, I'm happy to see that, that going And This was a time where it was maybe a harder sell and that's why body bags didn't take off as much, but I'm glad that it's been preserved and we have this as, as part of the filmography of John Carpenter and Toby Hooper as well. So I would never steer people away from it, but the criticisms I have are just kind of the criticisms I have, I guess. Did you recognize uh, the wife, who the actor was? Because it took me forever, and then only at the end did I figure out who the actor was. And this is going to test your 70s and 80s pop culture. This is probably, I'm probably not. I, I, I don't. No, I, I Twiggy. Don't. It's Twiggy. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, wow. Twiggy was a model in the 70s that had her heyday, kind of like Bo Derek a little bit. But it, yeah, I, for the life of me, I'm like, where have I seen this woman before? Yeah. And then it's Twiggy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Carpenter loves using like old pop culture actors that had a heyday and then and he's still using like Stacey Keach is another one, although he's been around forever. David Warner is a character actor, but yeah, Twiggy. It's Twiggy who's the wife who is also quite good and boy, do you feel sorry for her? It's not easy after that being married to that guy, so. No. 
So, I mean, your thumbs up for this, I think, right? I'm, it, it, yeah. Overall, it's a mixed bag. I, you know, it makes me, it makes me smile. You know, when Carpenter doing the sort of Crypt Keeper thing, like any anthology movie, it's pretty rare where all of the stories are awesome. You know, I'm yeah. looking at you, Trick or Treat, because that movie is 80 minutes of goodness. It's, it's a mixed bag, but it does make me smile. I always like the lizard's tail. I, you know, someone to watch over me is the gas station. You know, and even, you know, there's a little bit of invasion of the body snatchers a little bit with with hair. So yeah. a little bit, you know, these things that infect you and alter you. And I did like the fact that we learned the fate of the Stacy Keach character uh, in the little mini segments with Carpenter as well. We find out that the Stacy Keach character eventually took, t- you know, took his own life. And like stood in front of a train. I'm like, oh, okay, because <laughs> these bodies that he's that he's dissecting, if you will, they're all connected. Toby Hooper does appear at the end with uh, Tom Arnold. You know, I, I I had a weird thought watching this movie, and probably because Robert Carradine is in it. Um, Another Carpenter regular. Yeah. What would what would John Carpenter have done if he had gotten hold of the Tommy Knockers? I I think he could have made like and I'm I'm like the last person defending the Tommy Knockers novel and and that crazy miniseries but I think if if John Carpenter had gone hold of the Tommy Knockers that could have been a good time and it's weird I had that thought kind of connected to this film but that's I'll leave that out there in the in the I have a vague memory of the book and I have a vague memory of the TV series so I don't know and Stephen King is a vague memory of both as well yeah well yeah that's true that is also true. Good enough. Horror writer Sutter Kane, a harmless pop phenomenon or a deadly mad prophet of the printed page. He sees you. He sees you. For years, I thought I was making all this up. But they were telling me what to write. See the instrument of the homecoming. It starts the chain. Helps you see.
in the Mount of Madness is one that uh, mostly defend Carpenters that he still had it in the 1990s. This is one that had ended up, I think, for a lot of people who do their kind of 1990s top horror movies of the decade piece. It, it It's very, um, to me, it's very, well, it's Lovecraftian. And I think for me, what I was relating to a little bit more in the 90s when I watched it, and then still kind of is Stephen King. Oh, yeah. It's, it's definitely commenting on the popularity of Stephen King. Which King is very influenced by Lovecraft, as you know, as you would expect. But we have uh, an insurance investigator begins discovering that the impact of a horror writer's books are having um, this mass hysteria on on, on the fans of, uh, of, of, of the writer's book. And then the writer is nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam Neill... I think in a, a better performance in Memoirs of an Invisible Man, mm -hmm. um, goes on this this mystery, which is you know has some absolutely horrifying moments, and ends up in this town. And then he he has jumped into the Twilight Zone because no matter what he does, he can't get out of this town. And there's still this thing about this this writer who has this this godlike following, and 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 what what that's going to turn into and uh there's a lot of twists and turns i i don't know why over the years i've been so lukewarm on this film i maybe i just when i was younger i wasn't prepared for it or and i'm not quite sure what it is and even when i went to prepare that 90s show uh i, I rewatched it and it just wasn't clicking for me to put on that 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 top 30 list uh, that we okay. did for that episode, and you know, I, I'm still, I still think it would be a runner-up for me. Um, that's it. I, I get that it's, it's all of kind of the solid elements of John Carpenter put together in a film. It, it doesn't feel like as much of a, you know, it's, it's a complex story, but it's, it's less of him, you know, trying to be comedic or trying to do an anthology show or a Chevy Chase comedy. It feels like most naturally his type of movie. And as you said, this is the, the third and final uh, film in his uh, apocalypse trilogy, starting back with the thing, but like rewatching it for this and the notes all, you know, mostly positive. I have a couple of criticisms, but sometimes I think my criticisms aren't valid because of the plot twists and, 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 and where we end up going towards the end. I will say this, though, and, and because I complimented Prince of Darkness for its opening, I don't think I like the story structure of it all being this interview in this padded room and having the Sam Neill voiceover. I mean, there, we lose some suspense and some sequences because we know, okay, somehow he's going to be in this situation at the end. We don't know how, but... There's a, there's a couple of bits here and there where I, I, I just thought it was it was very 80s. You start off with the character who's narrating the story and we go is a flash and most of the movie is a flashback. I might have been happy to just go straight into the story and this mystery and just follow along, not knowing we still kind of see the story through his eyes, but not having those bookends, we could still get to that fantastic ending, but cut the reporter part out. I don't know if you agree or disagree on that one. I um, wouldn't touch anything of the narrative at all. Um, nope, I wouldn't. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I remember having a conversation with our mutual friend, Chris Harrow, um, and we we talked about, and it's something that, that I've, I've come back to recently, is what would 
happen if you're crazy, like you are not mentally well and everyone else around you is actually a lot more sane than you think you are, you know, and this is kind of a postmodernist thing on what is truth and what is not because our lead character seems to be in control here played by Sam Neill, but he's the one that has been put in the insane asylum. Yeah. John Trent is the character's name. Um, and he is very mad. <laughs> he doesn't think he's mad. Um, he also doesn't realize that he, he is fiction himself. He thinks he's yeah. real. Yeah. This is, you know, this is reality. This is not reality. And only by the end spoilers, do we realize that he is very much a creation of the Sutter Kane universe mm-hmm. and that, uh, what we've been seeing, you know, the entire time is just another story thread created by Sutter Kane. So the idea that you think that you're the one that is sane, but in, a, in actuality, you're just as mad maybe as everyone else is, I think is a terrifying concept. You know, we all try and in our lives stick to the script that, you know, are we a good person? Are we a sane person? You know, how do we operate within the social fabric? Um, and that, I think, at the heart is kind of one of the elements of, of In the Mouth of Badness is, you know, am I the hero or am I am I sane in this insane world? And if I'm not, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, that to me is what's terif- really what's terrifying about In the Mouth of Madness is that here's this character that is trying so hard to fight everything, thinking that he is the one that is the sane one. Uh, he's the one that is the right one, when in fact it's all a show. Mm-hmm. And that he is there as just another, he's one of the books, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, uh, and he got infected, quote unquote, by the movie that he watches at the end. Yeah. Um, I do love also the sort of idea, you know, the Bible was is, is still one of the most powerful books in the world, but it has probably lost its global impact on society in the past 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so to have someone like Stephen King, you know, there are authors that have such this huge following, you know, um, Stephen King is one, Clive, Clive Barker, Barker. Yep. Um, J.K. Rowling, although I think she's kind of on the downturn, but there's these authors that have created such an empire with their work. And, you know, they make that statement in the mouth of Keynes, you know, Sutter Kane outsells them all now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then just the sheer devotion to his writings, you know, the hunger games, you know, I'd say 10 years ago, how big was that? The twilight books, everything was twilight for years uh, and, how, Martin. and how that can overtake or, uh, organized religion. Love the Lovecraftian elements, even the practical effects with the monsters, you know, I, you, just yeah. give me that, Give me that practical, you know, effects of monsters. Yeah. It might take away some of the imaginations, but there's that sequence in the tunnel where Sutter Kane is ripped, packed, ripped open, you know, part of the door like a page, and mm-hmm. you see that long, dark tunnel, very MC Escher like, and these creatures coming out of it, like, um, you know, yeah, as, as a, a fan of the HP Lovecraft literature, it's neat to see all these references. Uh, Michael DeLuca is the guy who wrote it, used to run New Line Cinemas. I think he was running it at the time. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I dig a lot about In the Mouth of Madness. Um, I think you have to be a fan of Lovecraft's work and Stephen King's work, um, also Carpenter's work uh, to get it. But 
just the idea of what happens if I am the crazy one and, and not everyone else. And everyone else seems to be acting like it's the end of the world. I don't know. That idea that idea to me to this day is still terrifying is what if I'm not the good guy? What if I'm only the good guy in my own story? What is perception? What is reality? You know, like a lot of villains, you know, let's take Darth Vader. Darth Vader thinks he's doing the right thing in a lot of things. And he's a tragic fear, uh, figure. But he has no problem wiping out children. <laughs> you know, like a lot of villains think they're doing, they're, they're, the, they're the quote unquote hero in their own stories. Um, that's a terrifying, that's a terrifying notion. You know, Vladimir Putin probably thinks he's doing the right thing right now with the, the war of Ukraine. Western world would disagree with him. He's in his mind. He thinks he's uniting Russia, but it's colonialism. But I don't know. Big fan of In the Mouth of Madness. I, I love, you know, the bits with David Warner again, all of it, you know, trying to set the fact that David Warner thinks he's reality when in relation he's not as well. Like, like I said, they're all, they're all characters of the Sutter Kane. Love my Jurgen Prock now. Uh, always good to see him as well. Uh, I'm trying to think. He was very good. I mean, I, he didn't overplay his hand. Yeah. Like, when, when we see, you know, what he is in this world we're now in um, through John Trent's eyes. Yeah. Um, I've seen that type of character in Carpenter movies and other films and some actors make a meal and a half out of it. Yeah. He finds the right balance. It's, it's a very good performance as is Neil's performances, you know, as things go more and more out of control, I think he, this was a good role for him. He plays those beats really well. Love, yeah. love Julie Carmen as Linda Stiles. She, uh, for like genre uh, lovers, she was the bad vampire in Fright Night 2. Always good to see Bernie Casey. Uh, Peter Jason is a Carpenter regular. Wilhelm yes. von Homburg I've seen before. He, it's good to see him. Like I said, we've already talked about David Warner. And of course, uh, we've got Sam Neill. So pretty cool yep. cast as well. Charlton Heston, of course, shows up. Moses shows up for a couple scenes there. Yeah, Moses, Heston. yeah. Charlton Heston shows up. His 90s cameos, you know. Yeah. Yep. Francis Bay, great character actor. I mean, yeah. There, I guess what I, you know, you're, you're selling me on this more and more. And this is one where I, I, I kind of like Prince of Darkness, but Prince of Darkness seems to just kind of increase for me. And it's a, a slow increase within the mouth of madness. I've always appreciated, you know, the the art direction and the production design and the practical effects and just the, the look of it. Like you have this guy who's in ripped pages of a novel, I mean, towards the end. I, I guess I'm, I just I still struggle with it a bit. Sometimes I, I don't know why there's elements of it that are, are forgettable for me. Like if I go stretches of time without seeing this movie, I'd sometimes forget that Sam Neill isn't, isn't the writer, that he's the, the this insurance investigator in there. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. I'm thinking of this other movie. Cause it reminds me of another, uh, another movie called ghost writer, a Plansky film at points. And you know, this was well before that. Yeah. I, I guess I, I don't know controversially for me of the of the apocalypse trilogy this would be third place i i've really been but two and three are very close for me i mean obviously the thing is 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 the master in that i find this script tighter than prince of darkness like like prince of darkness wants to be smarter than it actually is and then 
turns into like like I said what I would call a zombie film it's still terrifying but this script seems uh, you know especially with the ideas they're juggling it just seems tighter and more organized mm -hmm. and that's just you know credit to Michael DeLuca and his screenplay but that's just me yeah, yeah I, I and I get that I get that and and part of it is the the structure which I think to me, I don't mind the narration if I'm reading a novel. If I'm reading the novel of this, I think I'm going yeah. to. And they're doing a novel on film. And, yeah, that I, I think they were struggling to figure out the end of this movie, too. And they ended up with that kind of interesting idea of the uh, of Sam Neill cackling away in the movie theater. I'll give you this. The film is more reliant on jump scares than Prince of Darkness, where Prince of Darkness is just methodical in its horror where it's just layer like it's coming at you the people are coming at coming at you you know it just it, it, there's a layer upon layer of dread where in the mouth of badness does have a lot of balls in the air i think they land it but and i think they're a lot more organized and structured in its storytelling but that once again that's just me Maybe it comes down to and it's maybe not a fair thing it's a very subjective thing yes yeah absolutely but you know which scares me more, Prince of Darkness or In the Mouth of Madness? In the Mouth of Madness has never really scared me. Okay. I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. It, hasn't, it just hasn't scared me. Prince of Darkness has some moments which are just so creepy and so terrifying. And I've I've gone on record. I, I like a slow burn yeah. horror movie. And I can see some modern audiences not having the patience for Prince of Darkness. Okay. But you would probably get behind in the mouth of madness. It, it is a tighter film. But I love the small town. It's like, yeah, it's like a Lovecraftian Stephen King could be one of his main small towns where yeah. this guy is stuck in this circle. And there's some really creepy imagery throughout. Yeah. Um, but I keep running into this in the show where I want to love a movie and I just really like it. And I would say yeah. I'm in the place I really like in the mouth of madness. And I get why. Uh, those who, and I still don't, I still think it's underrated. Not enough people have seen In the Mouth of Madness. And I think more people, if they give it a chance, would enjoy it. But those who love it, really love it. And I, I totally get it. I just wish I was part of that, that fan club. I'm well, no, it, it, it's fair because I, I will concede that Mouth of Madness relies some of its scares on the jump scares, you know, or, you know, the evil children. Like, that's 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 a traditional yeah, yeah, scare. Yeah, it's Mummy's yeah. Day. Like, you know, we, we've seen those elements before. Yeah. That's a Lovecraftian element of it, too. So, I mean, it's not original in some sort of ways, but neither is Prince of Darkness. So I can I can see where you're coming from what makes Prince of Darkness terrifying to what makes In the Mouth of Madness terrifying. I find the horror a little more cerebral in the Mouth of Madness, but that's just the whole notion of what happens if I'm the crazy one and not everyone else. You know, that, that's an element that is terrifying to me. And, and that's that whole mental illness aspect of it. Yes. Yeah, people were not mid-90s talking about mental illness in the way they are now. And so yep. I, I think when we talk about some of the themes and the ideas, even Prince of Darkness and your idea of the AIDS epidemic, still late 80s, not a lot of people were, they were starting to clue into it, particularly in Los Angeles. But so Carpenter's very much with his themes ahead of, ahead of his time. And yeah, this, I mean, this is one I promise you I'm going to revisit and I'm going to. Well, no, but I mean, he's just your own, man. Like but right now in this place, that's where it's at. Don't be too hard on yourself, man. You have your opinions and what works for you and what doesn't. It's... But 10 years from now, I might be in a completely different place, as I was with 
Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness really leaped up yeah. um, in this group of six here. So yep. anything else you want to say about In the Mouth of Madness? No, I love In the Mouth of Madness, man. It's good. Welcome to the theater. For everyone's enjoyment, we'd like to remind you of the following rules. No talking. No smoking. No littering. No red meat. No freedom of religion. And remember, all marriages must be approved by the Department of Health. Failure to obey these rules will result in immediate loss of citizenship and deportation to the island of Los Angeles. Enjoy the show. Your rules are really beginning to annoy me. We ran a psycho profile on him using a database of five million sociopathic personalities. He hit the bottom of the curve. Catches on quick, doesn't she? Town loves a winner. Let's say we play a little Bangkok rules. Nobody draws until this hits the ground. You ready? Draw. You got a problem with that? When it comes to escape from LA, your love of it or like of it or criticisms of it might be related to how necessary you feel this sequel was. I, I was in, in the 90s excited about all of these actors, these post-Tarantino actors. This was like the, the start of the Steve Buscemi revolution who appears in this movie. And and I was starting to discover Carpenter a bit. I hadn't grown up with Escape in New York. I think it had played late at night and I had seen clips of it here and there. So I was ex it looked like a colorful film. I and I was so excited to go see it. I, I saw it in uh, in movie theater, and I had a good time with it. And years yeah. later, for years, I was hearing, "Oh, it's awful! It's so disrespectful." Escape from New York is, you know, uh, is is way better. When I saw Escape from New York initially, it's funny. This seems to be a thing with Carpenter, where over time, I I change my opinions on some of his films, other than Halloween, which has stayed pretty, and The Thing, which has stayed pretty consistent. But it was later on I realized, yes, Escape from New York is the better film. Absolutely. But I had a good time when I saw Escape from LA in theaters. I had a good time preparing it for this show. And this is another one like Memoirs of Invisible Man. I was like, okay, how has time treated this one? When it comes to special effects, this is probably has aged the worst of any of the movies that we're, we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but it has a great cast. It is a, a whole lot of fun. Yeah, um, I, I recently on an, another podcast here somebody heard somebody defending Escape from L.A. and the hate on for it. Oh, I'm, I'm you're, okay. I, I'm 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 with your friend. Yeah, because the end of it is ultimately more satisfying than Escape from New York because of how they have used Snake Plissken, and he finally finds the ultimate way to get revenge on the government and on the systems here. Once he dooms the rest of humanity, though. If you stop there, and you think about there, it. There is, there is that. There is that. But the way he has been used and abused and treated, mm -hmm. what faith would he have left in, in, in humanity, and particularly those who are, 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 are running humanity? But anyway, we're going to the end first here. But he's, he's called upon by the U.S. government to... Uh, find a doomsday device in uh, Los Angeles 
and which is now its own island. And we, we see kind of years ago what happened uh, to L.A. I think, you know, you could probably criticize the, the timeline of it, considering the time he was in New York versus when apparently this L.A. Um, earthquake thing happened that made it its island onto itself. Mm-hmm. It looked pretty modern in those scenes yeah. um, versus New, New Escape from New York. It was already a dystopian world. Yeah, I didn't. You know, some of that wasn't thought. thought well, that's, that's yeah. Carpenter taking on 1970s, 80s New York, and like yeah. this is before pre-Mayor Giuliani came in and made it a bit of a police state. From what I've told from the New Yorkers, I knew friends of mine that are New Yorkers talked about what it was like before and after Giuliani came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, and it was it was a cesspool in certain parts of New York. Well, Times Square was uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it was, you know, yeah, it, yeah. I just saw a documentary on the Times Square killer. Um, yeah, I've seen that that Netflix yeah. one. Yeah, how easy yeah. it is for a serial killer to have operated in that in that world, and now it's Disneyland. I mean, you know, it's 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 different yeah. than the New York I I ended up living in, but. Um, but here he's really taking the piss out of L.A. And you yeah. alluded to uh, the plastic surgery thing. I, th- I, I thought all of that was great. You know, I mean, this this idea of anybody having real breasts, I think <laughs> that's... My God, they're real. You know. Chris Campbell. The cast is 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 so much fun. Uh, uh, Kurt Russell, he's, he's always, you know, he's just solid. If, even if it's a it's bad funny. script, I'm, I'm going to watch it because of how good he is. And this is one of his signature roles. Steve Buscemi, slippery as all get out. I mean, you never trust him, but I think this is a, a, another good character role from him. Valerie... Valerie Garlino? Yeah, she had her heyday in the 90s. I don't know yeah. kind of what happened to her after that. I I really liked her presence in films, and I, I think she holds her own. with Dolino. I'm, I'm Dolino. sorry, yeah. Valeria, if I've saying your name Valerie wrong. Dolino. I apologize. Yeah. yeah. She, again, she sends me an email after every show. Yeah. Yeah. Email. I'm sure she listens to this podcast right. all the time too. And uh, the late great Call Peter, me Valerie, Fonda. By the way. Peter Fonda is so much fun. And then a, a year before Pamela Greer showed up as Jackie Brown, we have Pam Greer um, playing a transsexual uh, character. Transgender. And, yeah. Transgender character, sorry. I think the cast works. This is the one where I said this is so much like Robert Rodriguez. Uh, actually, this and the, the last two and Vampires, which we're going to talk about, is very Robert Rodriguez as well in, in some ways, not all. But I, I really like, like how the movie is made, creative cinematography. It, it has this color that New York doesn't because New York is a little bit more uh, muted colors uh, and LA is bright colors because of the nature of Hollywood and everything to do with it. But I, I just have a lot of fun with it. So I'm a bit of an escape from LA defender, but it is, it has its problems for yep. sure. And it's, yep. You know, it's, it's a, a, a later Carpenter film. He's made better, but given like, are, are you going to have a good time with this? I really feel people, if they give it a chance, will have a good time with escape from LA. So that's where I stand on it. How do you feel about it? I'm I'm an Escape from LA apologist uh, with the understanding with people who are diehard fans of New York. I can understand why they don't like this movie because New York is dark. It is a dark, dark story. I mean, when Snake first shows up in New York, you know, um, he's given a finger by that scary looking person. And then we got people almost like zombies coming out of the floor and taking people out of nowhere. 
like and, and then graping people like it's a dark movie where escape from la is an action satire it knows <laughs> the rules of this sort of the american action film and is totally sticking its nose at it like yeah. this is pre-screen yeah. a lot of people will say you know oh new nightmare was that sort of meta thing and i'm like well all right but Escape from L.A. was sticking its nose at the, uh, you know, at the action blockbuster while being one. Um, and that's what it is. It's a sci-fi action satire comedy. And I think that's lost on a lot of people. But I can also understand, you know, you know their snake, even though, you know, the Clint Eastwood character, the man with no name in a lot of ways, escapes a very dark and harsh world where L.A., LA Sure, it's dark and you know, there's bodies all over, but there's always this tongue-in-cheek that goes on with it, mm-hmm. which I giggle at. You know, him surfing down uh, Mulholland Drive. That's so fun. It's so much fun. And it's Peter Fonda. It looks Fonda. easy, but it is fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's fun, fun, fun. And and, and you giggle. Um, I, I do think the jokes are, you know, of its time. Very nice. At the time, you know... I laughed. I even loved the trailer for this movie, um, and the and, and the sort of anti-establishment of it. Once again, we got Stacy Keach. Uh, we, it's always good to see him. We've got Cliff Robertson. We've got well, you know, Jeff Amata. I'll talk about briefly. Uh, you know, who else we got? I'm trying to think. Yeah, Michelle Forbes. Always good to see her. Oh yeah, she's so good in that. Yeah. 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 I think her in California and, yeah. and so many wonderful movies that again she was kind of a 90s actor i mean yeah give give her some work i mean i i do think the villain is a lot stronger in new york instead of george coro face mm-hmm. um yes you know, we had isaac hayes as the real big bad in new york i do wonder how much up against it this film was from its making to getting its release date. Because even when I saw it in theaters in 96 is when LA came out. 96, yeah. The special effects, they looked unfinished. You know, from, you know, we're seeing the earthquake to when Snake gets into that, you know, that nuclear charge submarine and he goes Mm -hmm. to underwater Universal Studios. At that time, the special effects were advanced enough that I went, ooh, this looks unfinished or, or very cheap. And and this was not a cheap production in a lot of ways. I think it was like 60 or $70 million. So I, I do kind of wonder how much up against it they were making this movie. But it's a gigantic satire. And I think if you go in knowing that and knowing what all the tropes of, you know, of the American action film and how it's taking the piss out of it, I think your appreciation of it goes, the snappy dialogue, even when, he, when Snake is being brought down, you know, talking about, you know, who's going to give me the antidote, and then the guys say, you know, someone will be waiting, and Pliskin replies, so none of you, and they, and they go, nope, and then he goes and he tries to kill Keach and the other characters, and they're like, we knew, that we thought we'd try that. The dialogue is, you know, at times just hilarious. Yeah. Good story, yeah. got to smoke. I mean, <laughs> now... I will give Parsons criticism on this is that Snake Plissken knows he's in a movie and that kills any real tension. We know that Plissken is going to get out of this. Just like in a lot of ways, we knew that he was going to survive New York. I think to make that movie even more memorable and if they ever do make a sequel and they're threatening to do another one, which please God do it. Time's yeah, time's taken for that one, I guess. Well, yeah, but Russell's star is still shining bright. Escape from Cleveland, they keep on. Or even Escape from World. I think I would love to see Pliskin not survive the next one. Yeah. Because 
Pliskin does real feel like he knows that he's in a movie and he will get out of it. Now I do, and but it's like a James Bond movie in a lot of ways. For the most part, we know, and same with the Clint Eastwood movies. Like there's a certain formulaic a formula to it where our hero, no matter how up against he, she, or they are up against it, they will get out of it. That's melodrama in a lot of ways. If Bruce Willis is starring in something called Die Hard, yeah, Bruce, yeah, yeah, he, you know, he will pull it out at the end. So that kills once again kills any real pathos. Uh, we know, you know, and, and he, you know, pulls that out at the end and does the switcheroo and essentially says "fuck you" to the president by doing the six 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 on the on the device and shuts down all the electricity. Yeah. Now, if you stop and you think about it, he yes. really does condemn a lot of the world to death. So it's like, ooh, snake. I get it. You want to be the ultimate badass, but the whole world. But whose fault is that? Well, yeah. I mean, he does it, but. You know. yeah, the president wants to take out half the population, so he, he Snake thinks he's doing it, to, you know, to, to create an equal footing. But he does condemn a lot of people in the process to doing it. But yeah. then you sort of think, am I overthinking Escape from LA? You know, I do love the, the stick it to the man mentality. That once again yes. is. Uh, you know, a through line through Carpenter's film, the anti-establishment of it. There's a certain romantic notion to it, but he does condemn a lot of people to death by his decision by the end. So it's like, I know Snake, you're not a hero. You're an anti-hero. Yeah, I mean, a lot of movies are like that if you think about it. And I, that's something I've kind of gone back and forth with with uh, with Larry yeah. on. And when, you know, reviewing a movie, when I end up cheering for a, probably a morally nefarious yeah. character that the movie has you know put as our our anti-hero I, I, think, I think that you, you you touched on why this wasn't a, a successful film it's because people took it way too seriously overthought it and and really it, it was just i don't know when it, when it was, came out maybe they rushed it i don't know but it was just kind of there but i was like it was it was a good time it wasn't like making 10 best lists or anything like that but it was nice to revisit that character it's been a long time. Sometimes that's a bit of a, a problem to have a yeah. sequel years and years later. We've seen yeah. it work sometimes. We've seen it not work. But I, yeah, I, I would have trouble saying to somebody, avoid Escape from L.A. because I had fun with it. It had diminished a little bit from when I, my memories of it. I, yeah. I, I will admit that where some of these were, were better than, than than my earlier memories. But I still ha it has some charm and some quality, and it's just one I want to – push out there and promote to more yeah. people to, to check out. A lot of people have seen New York. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they should check out New York as well because it's been a few years. But, but Escape from L.A. is not as bad as its reputation. No, is. no. And like I said, I'm a defender of it. I can understand why people don't like it. The concept from New York is so strong is what happens if we live in a society where we're going to put all our des undesirables in one section of the world. Like I, I kind of laugh that you know the the uh, the Valeria Golino character I'm put in there because I'm a Muslim you know yeah. I'm put in there because I'm gay I'm put in there because I'm, I'm I'm a transgender yeah. you know all the quote unquote non Christian elements of society non white Christian elements of society are put into this melting pot you know they're criminals. Being ahead of his time, I think you know I still well. Feel I, that. I I will argue because we had a lot of meta sci-fi more horror movies that you know are, are making fun of all the rules of, of their specific genre 
I think Escape from LA is a little ahead of its time in that regard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It's good to see Jeff Amata. He's another guy. He, I, I've been doing a lot of late, especially after doing the whole, the whole Van Damme episode on Reckon View. I, I, um, I, I'm growing a greater appreciation for stunt people and, the pro- yes. and, their, and their practical effects. Jeff Amata is a guy that has worked with Carpenter, but uh, with a lot of martial art movies. Um, so it's always good to see him. In that movie, he's the, one of the guys that's part of Carjack Malone, aka Pam Greer's crew, and says yep. we do the Night Winds. So it's uh, I, I always love seeing Jeff Amata. I, I have a friend who is a uh, who runs his own dojo, or at least well, he does out of the small town now. Uh, Greg, if you're listening, props to you. But he's actually um, worked and studied with Jeff Amata and has had some great stories. Yeah. So me personally, it's always nice to see Jeff Amata in a film and go, "Hey, Jeff." <laughs> much uh, much yeah. like uh, a couple other Saigon Shadow is his character's name <laughs> yeah Saigon yeah. Shadow Paul Bartel's in this that's right he's the congressman of course we've got yeah. Bruce Campbell the Bruce yeah Peter Jason yeah yeah Cliff Robertson playing the president I mean late in yeah. his career you know it, it's a fun movie but also just the, a stacked cast I just think it's yeah but, I mean if you're John Carpenter you could probably phone up most people and they will uh and they'll show up for your film yep but i'm, I'm glad you're absolutely right he he has it's like a tarantino type of memory for people that are not getting regular work and fe- finds ways to feature them so yeah he was a year ahead of tarantino as far as pam greer who i just think is a still to this day a very underrated actor oh she was quite dude she is quite the force i want to read her auto or her memoir and autobiography but especially during the rise of the black exploitation films having an african-american woman mm-hmm. being this powerful force it's refreshing like mm-hmm. man i watched coffee recently that's really good people need to see another film called sugar hill it's not pam greer uh but it's a black exploitation revenge horror film a lot of ways that's something else i've been kind of digging up of late i don't know i'm a big pam and she's still a beautiful woman oh, yeah. Um, yeah. i think she's in her 60s now she does some the odd tv thing or whatever here but no no i i i understand your deep affection for pam greer but I, I i kept thinking with after jackie brown she's gonna be getting tons of work and it's just weird how hollywood works in that way but I'm glad that like those really smart Otar directors know how special she is. Yeah. And how special so many of these act Peter Fonda, at that point nobody was giving him work too. He kind of had a little bit of a late resurgence because it was a couple of years after that, or the year after that, Yuli's Old came out. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fuck, I love yeah, his character. I love his character in this movie. Limey, I was, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. Limey's yeah. so good. He was so he was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> He's so much fun in Escape from LA. So fun is the key word here. If you want yeah, to, have it, is. Fun, it is. It is fun, and it's and that's something that New York isn't quite. New York, New York is yeah. thrilling, heavy. Yeah, it's a lot heavier. I mean, it's still a genre film, but LA is fun. You, you, you could argue that New York in general is heavier, and LA yes. is at least on a surface level. Well, it's fun. way lighter. It's way lighter in tone. Even the, even the color the palette. The cities themselves are, are that way, too. So yeah, the color palette is way lighter. Yeah. I mean, we even, spoilers, we know that the, the, the Galeno character is going to die the second she says that line. You know, yeah. Freedom, bang, uh. But, yeah. 
doesn't waste much time with no that. i mean and that, and that's the punchline that there's the setup for the joke and then there's the punchline yeah i think we both like it so i'm i'm relieved i wasn't sure how how you i was trying oh, to remember oh no no i've always been a big defender of la i think over time i can definitely understand the criticisms of it but i'm way more looking past its flaws uh, especially because, you know, a lot of people think Scream is, the, you know, the first real meta movie. And I don't know if L.A. is the first real meta movie as well. I'm sure there are other films that can make that claim. But long before Scream, long before New Nightmare, there was Escape from L.A. So sorry, folks. Have you ever seen a vampire? Forget whatever you've seen in the movies. It's not like they're seducing everybody in sight with cheesy Euro trash accents, all right? They don't turn into bats. Crosses don't work. You want to kill one, you drive a wooden stake right through his heart. We think we got a nest inside this place. And chances are we'll find a master in here somewhere. I know your parents were bitten by vampires and you were raised by the church to be its master slayer. No one knows vampires better than he does. Oh my, baby. But he met his match when he met the master who started it all. Jack Crow. He was a priest. It's the first known case of vampirism. The first and most powerful. You are the only one who faced Valak and survived. A master vampire has a telepathic link with his victims. <laughs> You're gonna help us find them. Across. For 600 years, Valak has wanted to live in the daylight. A master vampire, able to walk in the sun, unstoppable. Biggest nest of blood-drinking mothers the world has ever known. Time to kill some vampires. Step behind us! Come on! Come on! Woods. From the master of terror comes a new breed of evil, John Carpenter's Vampires. You never told me they could do that. I didn't know they could do that. It was actually 98. I was wrong in my introduction. The newest movie that we're talking about is from 1998 with Vampires. And either I, I saw it with you or I saw it around the same time you did and we had some conversations about it. I'm curious where you are with vampires now because um, you brought up some points that I, were, I just did not get when I first saw it. And I was like, yeah. And then that was still I remembered some things that you said from back then going back to this one. So this is the third one. I would say that I had watched when it first came out and I I was going in and like, I'm not sure where I'm going to be standing with vampires. Ultimately, controversially, I love vampires. It's just the, the momentum, the energy. I am a sucker for this kind of, like you, you mentioned how much he's a, a fan of, Carpenter's a fan of Westerns. No, this is a Western. I, and I am, yeah, this is a, a horror Western and I am a bit of a sucker for that kind of setting. And James Woods is making uh, a meal of this role, but I feel like it's somewhat in control. There are some directors that let James Woods kind of chew up the scenery, 
he chews some scenery, but I think he's it's the right amount of of James Woods. Uh, the music is great as it is with all Carpenter films. It's not it's not a hot take in any way. The look again, he, Car- Carpenter knows how to or with his his leads knows how to costume a character, but I, he has a really cool look. Like James Woods to me is not a cool person, but he looks cool in this movie. Um, okay. And some of the uh, the violence and the, the the scenes are just so well edited in a yeah i mean i think this is one of wood's best roles as far as a genre piece versus when he's he's doing like the ghost of mississippi or the salvador or you know the for your considerations movies but he just went all out for this one i remember the cheryl lee character you had some trouble with like how and we've already said carpenter sometimes isn't great at writing women and how she gets treated spoilers for early on she gets turned into a vampire fairly early on in the movie and then basically gets manhandled and dragged through uh, the rest of the picture. Also, I, I, I it's hard I, to I, watch. I, yeah. Yeah. It, it becomes so over the top. I also don't buy the, the Baldwin Lee uh, romance that just isn't, isn't computing as much and probably should have been uh, dropped from, from the film. There are some, like as there are in a lot of his films, there's some pretty bad one-liners somehow the ones that Woods delivers work because of the nature of his character. Snake Plissken can do the same thing, can get away with a kind of a, a bad line and kind of elevate it a bit. So I still really, really like this movie, even though I, I think 2022-2023 audiences could find a lot to dislike about vampires. But it brings the violence, it brings the horror, it brings the momentum. I I, I, I see a lot of Robert Rodriguez in, in this as well. Rodriguez does some different things, but that combination yeah. of a Western with a supernatural element, uh, there, there is a bit of a from dusk till dawn idea in here. I, I Another criticism I have is I wasn't that shocked by a plot twist kind of late in the film no. because of the actor who's playing the role. No. They to bring in Maximilian Schell for a film and give him nothing to do but no the second we see maximilian show it's like it's just like okay you're the one of bad guys (laughs) yeah and we've seen john carpenter and his his thoughts of the catholic church and other movies too yeah yeah well he is he is anti-organized group and i and i deeply respect that i think that's something that i can connect with um i've always felt different as a person anyways i'm not i'm not a uh a neurotypical human being and just learning to adjust the world through that way. Um, I can respect that. I, I'm not big on any organized group, to be perfectly honest. I think that's one thing that I, I can connect with Carpenter. Yeah. I think the I think the group can definitely suppress the individual. Not that individual not that individualism has its own criticisms. But yeah, let's let's well well I, I want to start talking about what works for vampires before yeah. I get into yeah. my criticisms of it. I love the practical effects. You know the slaughter at the hotel is awesome. Yeah, um, it's what an action sequence! I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah, I love Thomas Ian Griffith, Daniel Baldwin. Whatever, he's fine. James Wood is fine. The, you know, Carpenter gives him enough rope. Apparently, they did enjoy working well together. I can see that. Yeah. Um, Carpenter talking about. I don't agree with Jimmy's politics, but I definitely agree with Jimmy's. Uh, uh, Jimmy as an actor, and he's very smart. He's a Mesa graduate. 
you know, I love that the vampires are not the romantic and rice kind of vampires. Like these yeah. are very much monsters. Mm-hmm. And, and the any time that film any has any sort of real tension, like even the beginning when they go into the house and they have that shot going towards the door and then the door opens and we can sort of see inside the house and all the darkness. That stuff works. Honestly, if it just would have been stayed on the raid itself, I think I would have enjoyed vampires a whole lot more. This feels very much like Carpenter doing a Sam Peckinpah movie. Uh, Sam Sam Peckinpah was a very hard-nosed, raging, alcoholic, misogynistic filmmaker. I love, oh God, oh, I love a lot of his films, but Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, I think is a brilliant movie. I've been trying to watch that movie for years. I, I wish I could get my hands on a copy. Of I can it. lend you a copy. I've got it. It was my birthday present last year. Unbelievable performance by its two leads. But I think, especially in a 2022, 23 almost year now, folks. And I don't think Peckinpah was above criticizing himself. But the 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 Jack Cross character, is that what we're going to call him? Jack Crow. Jack Crow. Uh, is straight out of a Sam Peckinpah movie where he's an anti-hero, but we're supposed to have some sort of redeeming value. His racism, his bigotry, uh, and definitely his, his misogyny is hard to take. Now, the Cheryl Lee character, we can take a couple of ways because in a lot of ways, J- both the Daniel Baldwin and the James Woods characters cannot handle her. Woods' character sort of knows how dangerous she is, but even the moments of weaknesses that the, the, the Cheryl Lee character brings his guards down, the Crow character, like, he can't handle her. And, and neither can the Baldwin character, because eventually she infects the Daniel Baldwin character. But I do even, I remember even watching the film in the theater going, oh, man, like the tying of the bed and the punching her and oh, yeah. Yeah. kicking around. It, like it's it, it makes it really hard in a lot of ways for me to go on their journey. Now I get it. It takes a wolf to take on a wolf. And I can I can understand what Carpenter was trying to do. And you know what? Maybe make an anti-hero, making them so anti-hero, I, I can get it. But I don't know. It it really there's a huge difference between the Snake Pliskin character and this character. Mm-hmm. Like Pliskin is almost asexual. He like he, he like he doesn't glorify, he doesn't, you know, he's just it, it's him and the mission. And any other character, he, 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 like, unless you're there to help him achieve his goal, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you're in his way, he's just like, Meh. and like, and and doesn't doesn't really treat them badly. And now, granted, I might think he's slightly hedro because he does sort of respond to the Galeno character in L.A. Yeah, a bit, yeah. Um, but he's almost asexual, and I do respect that character a lot more than than the Woods character. But I do understand what he's going for is that, you know, here's a character who's been so destroyed by the life he's had. And there's lots of Catholic church, like the movie, how the Catholic church is betrayed is pretty funny with the bank accounts and everything. And, you know, you know, the vampire bank accounts. It's, yeah. it's, it is kind of funny in that regard. Apparently the novel is called Vampires with a Dollar Sign. That's uh, right. Yes. It's, it's like, based by John Stakey or Stakey. But it's, it's hard to take. And I almost wish, instead of making a prostitute, if they made it a child, how much different that movie would have been. Because making it someone completely innocent, I could have, I, I could have followed the vampire hunters a lot more, uh, in a lot of ways. I, I, it just the ugliness of it kind of took me out of it, and and that's kind of the criticism of it. But I, I, I can get what Carpenter was going for. It feels very much like a 1970s Sam Peckinpah film. 
I hadn't made that, but it makes perfect sense when you're saying that as far as Peck and Paw. Because I don't think at the time I saw this, I'd watched as much Peck and Paw. I recently reviewed Straw Dogs on the podcast yeah. and treatment <laughs> treatment of women in that one is interesting too. No, but yeah. it is. It's it's hard. Now I do think she's a force to be reckoned with. Like even when she's tied up, you can argue that she's planting the seeds of her betrayal. And they don't know how to handle her. They don't. She breaks free, but it's hard to take. It's hard. It's hard watching how they treat her. Like I, I feel like Cheryl Lee has been kind of being given a hard time in her career. Laura Palmer and all that. She's yeah. often in things that get kind of bad reviews. But I think she's she is actually a, a pretty good actor. Oh, um, given the right material, she is fucking brilliant in a little scene movie called Bliss which is an adult take on human sexuality and trauma. That and Damage are two films back-to-back that have a lot in common. Film lovers, check out a movie uh, called Bliss with her and Terrence Stamp. And who's the male actor? Ah, another 90s stale weight. He's in Nightbreed, The Program. Oh, uh, Craig Schaefer. Craig Schaefer. All three of them are brilliant in it. Uh, it's a great yes, Shirley. That one, yes, I haven't it's seen great it. Great Shirley performance. It's great. It's awesome. Adult, and it's an adult movie about human sexuality, not like you know American Pie and whatnot. Um, yeah. It's an adult film. Here's what I kind of would say. I, I I think I agree with you on the making her a prostitute. I mean, first of all, it's a cliche for one thing. I wonder because when she becomes a vampire, then she's the monster, and then has to be dealt with as a monster. And again, James Woods is smarter than Daniel Baldwin. Yeah, as he he knows what he's dealing with, he just can't he can't figure out a way to control this. He lets his guard down. I wonder if like the the steps they had taken, if because uh, you were thinking of it being a child or like the the Kirsten Dunst type of thing in an interview with a vampire, you know. Um, that would be very interesting. I'd love to see that movie. But what if it had been a male character tying the male to the bed, you know, punching out? What would would that reaction have been as, as disconcerting? You know, um, well, they would have to treat they would have to treat the child differently in a lot of ways, um, yeah. or maybe just make it a male. I don't know. For me, it's you know, and, may, and this is also just being a, a father of a daughter. It's hard to watch. It was hard well, I, to watch in the, no. in ninety eight. And it's even harder to watch now. It it does it it makes it unsettling. And I get the fact that these are monsters. Yeah. That their whole goal she's is no longer to... a woman. She's a vampire. Yeah, right? she's a vampire. I, I can understand that. But, but we're still seeing her in her human form, I guess. And that's yeah. Maybe maybe too hard. A bald one to me is kind of the weak link here. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, he, I think his his biggest success was on that homicide TV show. I think that was well cast and he's a villain in one of the credit kid movies and i know my oh wife, that's right yeah my wife loves cobra kai i haven't seen it yet it's on my to-do list i, I haven't either uh and yeah. so he's he has a good role in that but yeah just the momentum of it and i guess i am because i i have become a peck and paw fan so it makes sense for me to to like this and i'm a big fan of like a, just these kind of texas mexican settings i maybe i'm a little bit too of a too much of a sucker for it, but I, no, I, I, just... love, I love the aesthetics of it. Mm-hmm. I do. Uh, my problems with it are how they treat some of the characters. Um, and Ed Carpenter didn't write the screenplay, of course, is Don Jacoby. Yeah, um, I um, don't 
I thought I found the first half an hour, 45 minutes chilling, but once they're really on the road, it becomes a road action film. And um, I knew that good was going to triumph over evil per se, that they were going to stop the, you know, the main baddie. But the journey's fun. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I had a good time on that journey and I like the climax. Yeah. Of it. it is big. It is, you know, Tim McGee plays the other. I, yeah. John Valak. Yeah. Is, played i do like tim guinea whose father adam gateau who's he's a bit of a beta character to yes. alpha but the end bit where jack crow is tied up on the cross and tim mckee realizes that you know he's sort of just the fact that he's there they need another priest to yeah. continue the the transformation or ceremony and he says yeah. well then i'm gonna kill myself that's it go fuck with them padre i mean i love that I love I love the Tim McGee Jack Crow relationship. Yeah. I would say the the biggest thing I get the the snake comparison, and I think I brought it up even in kind of introducing the film. The difference is Jack Crow works with a team. Like we see yeah. that in the opening sequence, he's not a he's not a lone wolf. Nope, he plays by his own rules, and the team yeah. has to go along with it. But but he's not really a lone wolf, and and that's why maybe that's that's a bit of a different a different thing than than Snake who does what he needs to do for the mission. I still think there's a mission here that Jack Crow is trying to complete, mm -hmm. but he is relying on other people and, and that's where some of the, the problems, but again, towards the end, then it, he, he needs the help from others. I get it. Again, I feel like I'm repeating myself with a lot of these reviews. This is not a movie that gets talked about as much as I think it should. I think people need to check it out with the warnings that you have, have given about it and kind of form their own opinions because you know a lot of the particularly the 90s carpenter movies just they don't seem to get mentioned as much as his 80s stuff and the run he had in the 80s was spectacular no doubt about it and and a real variety of, of films in there but i i kind of wanted to have a show which mentions kind of this later part of his career and I'm putting forward this argument that he was a great director in the 70s and 80s, but he was a great director in the 90s. And if he put together a film and decided to do it today, it would be great. It might be different. People evolve. Things change. Cinema's changed in the last 40 plus years. But I, I don't think any of these movies are bad. There's something interesting and good about each one. So unfortunately, now we have to distribute some points there. Was there anything else you wanted to say about vampires before we... Yeah, I think that's, that's about it. Give you assholes a chance. <laughs> what do you say we play a little Bangkok rules? Thank you for being back on the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I've appreciated Thank you for having me, my friend. And, you know, six movies reviewing, it's a time commitment to know. And uh, so I just appreciate you. And 
there'll always be uh, an open door if you uh, want to come and talk movies. But uh, you're a busy guy for sure, there. and I know how that that goes. Plus, Mr. Parsons keeps you busy with a bunch of <laughs> shows for his show. For yeah, well, yeah, life life is busy. Yeah, life tends to be him. Yeah. It gets more and more each day. But So it's time to put some points together for these uh, six John Carpenter movies. So starting off with Prince of Darkness, how many points did you give Prince of Darkness? Uh, well, if my math is correct, I gave Prince of Darkness 10 points. And then Memoirs of Invisible Man. I gave it five points. And Body Bags. Uh, five points. And then we have In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, I gave it 20. And Escape from L.A. 15. And finally Vampires. Five to round it off. All right, so I'd, I'd say, yeah, yeah, our points are in different places, but that's okay. So starting off with uh, Prince of Darkness, I, I, I told you it had increased big time. I gave it fourteen points. Went back to Me- Memoirs of Invisible Man. I gave nine points too, perhaps generous, but I I have some sort of nostalgia for for this film and for Chevy Chase. That no, uh, I get it, <laughs> right or wrong. Body bags, you know, I. I Hopefully I said enough balanced things here, but just against these other movies, it, it was harder for me to give it a bunch of points. I actually only gave it three points, perhaps ungenerous. So, Well, um, no, I have it at the bottom, technically. In the Mouth of Madness, I gave 13 points, again, trying to balance it out. I I, I feel like I'm almost there. I'm just not, not over the top with it mm-hmm. um, quite yet. I, I'm really happy that you like Escape from L.A., but I still... I, Again, against the other films, I gave it seven points. So I was singing its praises, but it's certainly not a perfect movie, but it's fun and it's entertaining for sure. I'm a loud and proud Escape from LA apologist is the best way I could describe that movie. It's good. And probably our biggest difference is vampires. I gave it 14 points. I, I just had such a good time with it. Yes, the scenes are tough to watch for sure, but I, I guess I was mostly seeing the positives in it. And I, I I, I went in with my arms crossed, and they became more open as I, as I went through. But I I don't uh, disagree with you on any of the points that you made with that film, for sure. And it, it certainly will not not be for everyone. The order is the uh, top film, In the Mouth of Madness, with 33 points, followed by Prince of Darkness with 24. Third place went to Escape from L.A. with uh, 22 points. In fourth is Vampires with 19 points. Fifth is Memoirs of an Invisible Man with 14. And maybe not surprisingly, given the number of points I gave it, Body Bags is at the bottom with eight. So I have a Scream Factory copy of Body Bags. You get to decide what I do with it. I'm a big supporter of your local library, but also uh, United Way foundations, whether it be something like Value Village. So if you were to donate it either to the local library saying, here, here's a copy to the library, that'd be cool. Or if you were to drop it off at a place like Value Village or the United Way that sell secondhand clothing, I think that would, that that's, that's what I would do with it. Okay. That sounds good. I haven't had luck with the library. That's That's been one that a lot of people have suggested. And when I called them up, they weren't taking, I don't know if it's kind of a post or COVID thing or something. They they haven't been, at least in Saskatoon, been taking donations recently. I can call again and see if they would do I that. I wonder if it's a governmental thing. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it is. But yeah, Value Village, for sure, I'll be happy to donate that film. And again, I just because it's at the bottom doesn't mean it's a bad film. People should uh, check out Body Bags, and uh, it has its fun moments as well. So. All these thing, all these films do have value to them. Um, yeah. It's not like I like I hate this. I hate them. No, 
So thanks for doing this again. I, I want to shout out a few podcasts before we go. Obviously, our friend Larry Parsons, Rank and Review. Uh, you mentioned John claude Van Damme. I know you have some other shows that are coming up, uh, some really big shows for his next season. So you uh, should listen to Rank and Review and listen for Lee's voice. Schlockenau, Film Feast, and A Lifetime of Hallmark all friends of the show please check out those podcasts and as i always end off every show uh be kind be safe be nice to each other we're transitioning right now from 20 2022 to 2023 each year i think we're hoping for a more positive new year we really hope that that's the case so just you know it's okay to differ with people and have oh different god views. please yeah. i sorry for interrupting jason but oh, i co-heartedly agree with you that's something that going forward especially in social media it's so hard it's so easy to demonize the other side you can disagree with your point of view but please be kind to each other respect and kindness we need that back yeah. I, I don't know we've gone so far over to this other extreme the pendulum has to swing back in 2023 is the perfect time folks to do this. So especially just the hardest of what COVID has created and everything involved just with, with the political sphere. Yeah. Please be kind to each other. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Also shout out to the terror table. Um, those are some yeah. boys that like they fucking represent. Um, yeah. I don't know them. them. And so I haven't been connected to their, their show i've listened to it obviously a few times but no yeah, they, i i'm i'm big fans of them they know what they're doing and they're like they're now in the industry um yes. and like they they and they get some good guests they had like the director of blair witch on yeah that was an amazing show uh, but they had the dp of halloween on and i and this is how tired i am uh, i forget his name currently and i feel ashamed but those boys power to them and again three guys just from saskatoon saskatchewan canada who just decided to talk movies and it's going to become bigger and bigger and bigger. They're part of sponsoring film festivals and screenings at yeah. the theater in Saskatoon. They're in it. I know one has moved out to Vancouver and he's yeah. working with it's the Braun, Braun company yeah. who, who made Joker and everything. They, they just, uh, I know that they just released a short film called the Druid's hand. I have not seen it, but I desperately want to see it to support uh, local independent horror filmmaking. I would, so I'm a big, big supporter of the Terror Table. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you've been on it too, I think. Yep. You and Larry have both been on it. So. But those boys know what they're doing. And my last thing is I always do, again, I, I love movies. I hope you love movies. If you're listening to this podcast, Lee loves movies. You know, whether we agree or disagree, please keep supporting the movies and going to cinemas to see them as well as watching them at home whenever possible. It's just an industry that deserves to keep going and i'm yep. fighting for that so thank you so much